Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs for the next year. I'll be teaching at Vinh University in Hanoi, Vietnam. So I um, say hello from the Far East. Uh, please welcome today our uh, guest uh our guest today is Michelle Gladio, an award-winning author who wrote uh, Communicate with Courage, Taking Risks to Overcome Four Hidden Challenges, published by Barrett uh, Kohler. Barrett Kaler, yes. Barrett Kaler. So, Michelle, we're so glad to have you. And what I'd like to do is ask you if you could please give us your background. Sure, I'd be happy to. Hi, everybody. I am an executive coach and an instructional designer and trainer in communication skills and related topics like stress and change management, business writing, presentation skills, negotiation. I have previously worked for other companies as a human resources and training director, but in 2004, 18 years, 19 years ago, I decided that it was time to strike out on my own, and so I founded a company called Gladio Consulting. Um, that is my last name, but it's named in honor of my late parents because of the wonderful emphasis they put on education as I was growing up. I now have a team of 10 great people who work with me in and around the Midwest in the United States. And we offer executive coaching. So one-on-one -on -one help for people to become better communicators, better leaders. We do a lot of team training events, keynote speaking, and also strategic planning, which is a unique sort of challenge to help teams in all types of industries and government and academia kind of get their plans together for the coming two to three years. Uh, my academic background is with Purdue in West Lafayette, Indiana, where I studied organizational psychology and industrial technology. And I graduated there uh, with my master's at age 23 and started teaching college right away and working in the professional development space right away. So just a lifelong communication skills teacher and coach. And I love- And which everybody teacher. needs to work on on a constant basis, right? I mean, that's yeah. something uh, that you never stop learning to be better at. Uh, Michelle, why do you, what's the best part about being a coach? And what's the hardest part about being a coach? Yeah, best part is getting to know, in my lifetime, I've gotten to know thousands of people deeply and earning their trust and being able to be candid with them as we talk about our strengths and weaknesses has brought a lot of challenge and joy to my life. Hardest part might be, it doesn't happen much anymore, but it might be when someone is mandatorily sort of uh, instructed to go get coaching or to attend training. I love it. I love that challenge. But a, a hard part of that is winning them over and showing them the utility of looking at themselves um, with a maybe a more critical lens so they can find some things to polish up, which helps people, you know, in their personal lives with their families, romantic relationships, as well as in their careers. Do most people think they don't need the coaching when that's mandatory? 
most people probably know they do, but they might be afraid to look at themselves. And that really brought me towards writing Communicate with Courage, towards writing the book, because that was my next question. Why did you write this book? Yeah, uh, Mark, I just began to notice that all of these thousands of people from different industries and backgrounds and ages, and I was getting to know a broad swath of humans, but I was seeing four things that keep holding them back and that keep holding me back. So I wanted to write about the obstacles that hold us back as communicators and what do you, you know what do you know no surprise they all have to do with fearing something and we can overcome our fears when we summon courage but no one else can do that for us so i try to be a guide and sort of let people know here's where the road is going to get rough or why your road might feel rough right now and here's what you can do about it and i was happy to be able to with a wonderful editor from my company named tim jones before we took it to the publishing houses and and kind of shopped it around Tim was on my side for four years, working on weekends as we went back and forth, and he would be my test reader, et cetera, and tell me what he really thought of the book. So we managed to produce something that is, we hope, timeless and timely, but the best thing is it is short. So I wanted it to be something you could throw in a bag or read on a plane. Yeah, it's short, but it's very substantive, and you have great examples in there. So I thought it was well done. Uh, Before we get into the book, when you're getting a coach, what's the criteria you should use for picking a coach? I think you need someone who has an academic background as well as a real life background and who can point you towards people and organizations who can say that they are better for having known that coach. And then it's sort of like dating. You know, you want to meet with that person, talk with that person, or at least meet uh, via video or have a phone call. And just ask them what they help people do and what their areas of expertise are to see if you have a match. As with anything else, when you're dealing with another human, and certainly if you're paying for their time, you want to make sure that you have some chemistry there and that this is someone you feel you can be frank with. Uh, Because when we don't put all our cards on the table, we can't really benefit from a coach's wisdom. It kind of reminds me of the first time I tried mental health counseling. This was maybe, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago. I was in a tough relationship at the time. I mean, all relationships are tough sometimes, right? But I went in and spoke to a counselor. And as I left after the 50 minutes were up, I thought, hmm, well, I told about half the story there. I wonder how helpful this is going to be. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the more of your story you're willing to tell, the better the coach will be able to do with you. Yeah, more. And that's how lawyers always say the same thing. Here's a question from the audience. What's the appropriate rate to pay for a coach? Absolutely depends on where you are and the coach's credentials. So I'm going to decline to give um, a number to that because I've seen uh, I've seen rates all over the board. But uh, would you say like, I mean, and you're right, geography, right? What somebody's charging in New York is definitely going to be different than what you might charge in Fort Wayne, Indiana, because the cost of living and so forth, understandably. So, and depending on your experience and expertise, Mm -hmm. I can understand that. Um, You write about improving the company culture through communication. What does that look like and how is that done? Oh my gosh. Well, are we talking about an individual, Mark, or would you like to talk about it from a broader systemic point of view? 
Well, I guess I'm talking about, you know, um, every entrepreneur wants to build a corporate culture and how do you do it and make it on an authentic way and communicate it in a way that people don't say it's bullshit. <laughs> Good. Yes. Because some of those value vision and mission statements we work with, yeah. when we work with organizations and strategic planning, yeah. they're, long, they're heavy, they're not applicable. So if you want to build a positive culture, a healthy culture that is functional, you want to be a, a humble leader. You're the entrepreneur, let's say in this case, starting the culture. You always want to be asking for constructive feedback and consistently checking in with your coworkers, with your people about what is it like to work here? So I'll often say to my team individually and as a group, what's the best thing about working with Gladio Consulting? What's the most challenging thing? Sometimes I'll take my pen and say, pretend this is a magic wand. And if you could wave it over our organization, our policies, our practices, our communication, and you didn't have to do much work to get there, but you could have one wish granted, what wish would you have granted? That doesn't mean that I'm in the business of granting every wish that I hear from teammates and employees, but at least I can understand where they're coming from and let them know what I can do about it or can't do about it, and also engage them and ask for their help. If I may, I want to offer another kind of a part B answer to that. Yeah, sure. Sure. The importance of performance reviews or quarterly chats or annual chats, it could be as formal or as informal as you wish for it to be, but it's very important to have eye-to-eye contact with each team member to let them know how you see them growing where you see they excel, which gives you an opportunity to say thank you very specifically for the talents they bring. And also everyone, even your rock stars that have positive attitude, high performance, and high intrinsic internal motivation, all of us need a stretch goal, something to be working for and working towards. So we help a lot of organizations institute their first round of performance reviews We customize whatever format will be best for that type of industry or business. And sometimes we sit in with the supervisor, owner, or founder, manager, and the employee to make sure both parties are heard during the discussion about performance. A couple tips, but, you know, culture changes, establishing a positive culture or changing a culture, it's a long road. I've seen some academic studies that estimate six to eight years not only to get a culture set, but also if you're trying to add positive elements to your culture. So when so, we become warriors for good culture, we have to be ready for the long run. Well, what happens to culture like it did during the pandemic? And, and now we're still seeing people who don't want to come back into the office. I mean, we're seeing in a lot of the major cities where um, people are abandoning totally the office or they're shrinking their footprint. And now they're calling their uh, offices, hotels, because they're letting the employees come like two, three days a week. And if you're not there seeing everybody, how do you go and create a culture when people aren't physically uh, together? Yes, it's created a unique challenge for leaders of people and leaders of processes, hasn't it? What we're doing with our executive coaching clients is teaching them how to be more engaged and how to use techniques to be able to relate, even though we're not getting the same eye-to-eye contact or the eye-to-eye contact has changed and it's now more video-based, but it can still absolutely be done that a leader can build a positive culture. It just takes a new approach 
and some of the same old best practices that have always worked when you're trying to develop relationships with humans. Which are what kind of practices? Being open to feedback, as we've discussed, being interested appropriately in their personal lives. So learning a little bit about something with each person that you're either teaming with or even serving in the case of uh, external customers. And really another idea is just treating everyone like they are your customer when you're communicating so that you have strong internal customer relationships and strong external customer relationships. One of my favorite exercises to assign to communicators and leaders, and I believe we're all leaders, is uh, called the Feedback Challenge. And folks can find this on our website at gladioconsulting.com. We have a ton, speaking of uh, the pandemic, we have put a ton of free, very actionable and quick and easy to use and understand resources there for download. So I encourage everybody to go check that out. Um, as well as I write a quarterly e-newsletter called Breakdown, named after my favorite Tom Petty song. Uh-huh. And we include links to our research and links to our materials. One of those materials is the feedback challenge. And that gives you a format to send a form and a format so that you can send a pretty simple question to, I would recommend a dozen or more folks who know you personally and professionally, and they fill it out and send it back, or they might want to speak with you and tell you what they see in you. The question is, when you think about me as a communicator, what are some of the things you like about communicating with me? And what do you sometimes think I could do differently or better? I threw the sometimes in there to soften it a bit, to qualify it a bit, because many personalities, especially amiable personalities or exceptionally kind people, or perhaps people afraid to be very direct with feedback, they might hesitate to tell you what they really see that could help you be a better communicator. So I highly recommend run your own little survey. Say that you attended a podcast training, you know, or you heard an interviewer, an author speaking, and it's also in the book. Um, So you could get that information coming in and get a portrait, a picture of you as of July, 2023, or whenever you're enacting this exercise. And it gives you an opportunity to quietly, inwardly, review all the feedback that comes to you. And then you can decide if there's something that you want to start working towards changing. And maybe you enlist the help of a coach. But again, this was another huge motivation for me to write this book. Most people can afford a $14 paperback book or a download on Audible. Not everyone can afford to engage the services of an executive coach. So I wanted to find an affordable way to raise people's games as communicators. They still need the coach. I've had coaching uh, my whole life and I'm 62. So yeah, I think coach is incredibly valuable. In the book, you write about four hidden challenges to better communication. What are they? Sure. Um, The four hidden challenges that I write about in the book are, and this would be chapter four, is hiding from risk. And that's when we're not quite as brave as we could be because we are talking ourselves out of our own value or worth as humans or communicators. So we fly low instead of letting our voice be heard and taking more risk, smart risk about things that matter. The second hidden challenge that's outlined in chapter five is defining to be right. I'm not sure if cussing is allowed on this show. Mark, can I cast? <laughs> we tried. Go ahead. All right. It's not bad. It's just damn. I'm going to say damn. It is <sighs> feeling like you're just so damn sure that you're correct 
that nobody can maybe get a word in edgewise or they can't get you to consider an alternate perspective. Thus, you live your life blinders on and you miss all of these diverse experiences, others' perceptions, and maybe some constructive feedback that could help you grow. So defining to be right, if you've ever heard, like I have, that you're a black and white thinker, there's room for you to expand your vision. Chapter six talks about the third hidden challenge, which I termed rationalizing the negative. Here's an example of how rationalizing the negative sounds. That's a pretty good idea. You should bring that up in the next team meeting. Oh, no, no, no. They're not, they're not going to care. She's not going to do anything with it. I've already tried to tell him. They aren't welcoming any input, so I don't want to take the risk. And we rationalize the negative in our personal lives and in our professional lives. And the book is geared towards helping people find the bravery to take a shot, even though you might be shot down. The fourth hidden challenge, chapter seven, is settling for good enough. And that's when we we tell ourselves that C plus effort is good enough here. When in fact, at least at some point during each 24-hour period that we are gifted to be alive and be part of this game as communicators, we should probably be striving towards something that matches our goals, our values, or our needs. So when we settle for good enough, we chill back and we think somebody else will do it. They probably already know they're good, so I don't need to give them a compliment. Oh, I don't know a thank you note. That would take that would take four or five minutes in a stamp. That's too much effort. It's hard to go first when you're on a team and someone says, who would like to ask the first question or share with us their project update? If we were doing that with this call, look at all these awesome people that are joining. I'm so grateful. But if we were to throw a question back to the audience and say, would someone please give us an example of everybody on this call in this interview today knows you can chill back. Somebody else will do it. And I get it. That is understandable. We can't always be striving or we would burn out, but we should probably choose two or three things in life that we're willing to stand for. And that's another executive coaching exercises that our clients are another coaching exercise that our clients are loving among all the exercises we design. Folks are enjoying taking some time to journal or document what will I stand for when it comes to myself and sticking up for my wants, needs, desires, and hopes? And how about others? There are so many people who have been traditionally and are still disadvantaged or could use a hand up, could use someone to stand up for them or to make sure their idea gets credit or they get a chance for a job interview, et cetera. You could use your voice strategically sometimes to advocate for others. And Michelle, what do you stand for? What do I stand for? One of the things yeah. I stand for that I've, I've documenting what I stand for has helped me do this. One example, when I am present, when there's racism, sexism, ageism, et cetera, happening, and perhaps someone is ignorant or unaware that they're engaged in a biased practice, I don't have to drive home, sleep on it, think about it for a month and go back to that board meeting, for example, or back to work the next day and then bring it up, I've made a deal with myself. I diplomatically and assertively try to point us in a different direction that is more fair to all. And it has saved me a lot of time and rumination because I'm figuring out ahead of time what I stand for as a communicator. And one of those things is I want to try to be inclusive. As we all should be, right? 
and we all have our biases. And you know, researchers have identified over a hundred um, definitive that we can get an operational definition around and prove the existence uh, bias that is both conscious or unconscious. So most of us are are walking around with quite a bit of unconscious bias and maybe even some conscious bias, <clears throat> and that really keeps us from becoming a plus 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 communicators. Because you know what? The best teachers, managers, service providers, salespeople, healthcare providers, government employees, however you are uniquely positioned to serve and communicate, it you are damaged by any bias that you have because it will sneak out in your communication and it will alienate one or more people. So you can't be as influential. So I don't just teach, when we teach harassment and bias prevention, we're not, we've been doing that since 1996. Um, I'm not doing it just for the good of the group, the team, the organization, or just to help protect them legally. I'm doing it for the good of the individual because it allows much more success in life. That's great. What do you mean when you write feel before you deal? I thought <laughs> I that was interesting. That, I did put that in the book. Um, sometimes we can go off a little bit half cocked. You know, we can sort of get ready and then fire and think, ah, I should have aimed. So to feel before you deal allows you before responding to think about how am I feeling today? Why did that comment hit me the way it did? What is the most positive, professional, and effective way that I can respond to this? All of the words we have to choose from, all of the various media, text, phone, email, in-person meeting, also, there's the option of be like a duck and let that water roll off your back. Maybe a response isn't called for here or wouldn't be valuable to you. So that's advice to those of us that feel before you deal is advice to those of us who have highly expressive personalities or strong high D dominant driver assertive personalities because they tend to rush in. And sometimes the better thing to do is calm yourself and compose a response that benefits you and the other party as much as possible. Can't agree more because bad things happen when you jump right in without taking a step back. Uh, what is pro moves in terms of communication that you mentioned in the book? And that's throughout the book, the pro moves. Yes, we counted it up. I think we have something like 70 or 80 pro moves. Um, I'm going, if I may, can I read a few sentences, Mark? Yep, absolutely. Okay. okay. Pro Moves, folks, is um, between us. It's also the name of my fantasy football team where there is, uh -huh. no, there is no winning happening. I'm usually last in our league every year. But when I thought about what I want to teach all of you, it is I want to teach you some pro moves so you can communicate like a pro. So from the introduction, keep your eyes peeled for pro moves in this book. You'll see them sprinkled throughout the book with time-tested favorites, concluding each chapter. A pro move is a communication attempt. It's a way of sending or receiving messages more deftly than the average bear. It's a good try that might flop or you might pull it off with flying colors. Either way is okay. A pro move is a communication strategy others might see as involving too much trouble or skill to undertake. So they walk on by and they miss their chance to get closer to their communication potential. Making a pro move requires a passion for learning and a desire to improve your life or someone else's life. 
It often means you'll use self and other knowledge in the action you're taking or deciding not to take. As we just said, sometimes the pro move is chill. For example, you know your preference when communicating is to do or say X, but you read a situation to call for Y. So you zig when you used to zag. Maybe you stand out or stand up or even stand down, but it's not the easy choice. What is it then? It's the pro move. So we have a question from the audience. What's one of your go-to pro moves? Ooh, one of my go-to pro moves. Hmm, that's a great question. Which do I want to pick here? Um, I think I'm going to say, I'm going to share the pro move that's at the end of chapter two. And that is, go about life as normal this week, but add one ingredient, a new risk. So what you would do is say or write or type or text one thing that you would normally keep to yourself, but you energize yourself to extend forward to another person. So the motive here should be that you're trying to be helpful. Could be a kid, could be 90, 99 years old, could be a nine-year-old, but you're trying to be helpful, candid, kind, and real. You bring your authentic self to the communication. If you'd like a pro move on top of that, I suggest that you state your positive intention up front, and that increases the chances that your communication will be heard. For example, if I'd like to ask a coworker to do something differently, I might say, hey, I'm not trying to tell you how to do your job, but when you do X, Y is what is the effect downstream. So I'm wondering if you could look at your process for X, is there any way you can help us with Y? But what did that person hear out of my mouth first? Not trying to tell you how to do your job. I might even add, you're the IT expert, certainly not me. Here's what I've got. Here's what I'd like to put on the table. And this works at home also. Well, I find often uh, when you're dealing with your kids, if you say to them, what do you think we should do about this? As opposed to telling them what we're going to do about it. I actually sometimes get, they can become harsher on themselves than I would have been. Yes, humans love to be included and treated like they matter, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because so much of business is a global, whether dealing with people around the world who work on your team or you live in a multicultural community, how do you develop a communication style that makes all groups feel they're being understood and appreciated and doing it with authenticity? Well, I try to more deeply know folks' preferences, strengths, and weaknesses, and then speak to them as if those are absolutely acceptable. So where I shine, someone else might need some work, but that means 100% of the time, they've got gifts that I don't bring to the table. So back to my own team and our executive coaching process, we have found a personality assessment that we respect, and we use that with all incoming coaching clients. It takes the client I'm going to say about 40 minutes to answer more than 100 preference questions that are multiple choice. And then it takes us a week to put together the full 14-page report plus a one-page Cliff Notes version. And after they receive that and read it, then we have our first coaching session. And the person shows up for that via Zoom or Teams or in-person. 
much more aware of positive and negative perceptions others have of them. In the same way, valid, robust personality assessment has helped myself and everyone on our team. We tend to retake every one to two years because we find things that we want to work on and then we go live it in real life. We choose the goals. We accept ourselves as we are. We choose a few things to try to improve or try that's different, that's not in our personality style, but we'd like to learn how to leverage. And then we retake and all of us are comparing results and noticing positive changes over time. A personal example is that when I first took a personality assessment, I was pretty shocked at how competitive it rated me as being. I was using competition and trying to win more than any other negotiation strategy, which might sound good to the people joining this interview, but not so good, especially in personal life when you have folks that you love and you want to have ongoing positive relationships with them. It's not so great. So I looked at the other types of conflict management negotiation style that I wasn't using and learned about them and became someone who incrementally through the years has gotten better at accommodating, compromising, and the kinds of things that come hard to me because of the type of personality I possess. So that's a great way, understanding your own and others' personalities and realizing that that is by far one of the most important differentiators and also places where we can find commonality among us to bond about, that's a, that's another pro move. Have you learned to accept yourself over time, like who you are as a person and not trying to change yourself to fit what others would like you to be? That is, you ask great questions, Mark, and that is a deep one. Yes, but let's talk about role models for a minute. I was blessed with tall people when I was small, right? Who were telling me in my family, who were telling me, well, if you're the only one that doesn't want to be in Girl Scouts, so be it. What would you like to do? I'd like to dance. So I went to ballet and made some friends in other schools when everyone at my school was doing that thing that everyone was doing. And, you know, in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I really struggled with the heartbreak of being ostracized by my peers because I was different, probably for a lot more reasons other than I wasn't a joiner. But it did bring me into adulthood, realizing that sometimes uh, one voice is all that's needed to make a positive difference. And I'd much rather put my head on the pillow and sleep well at night, knowing that whenever possible, I was trying to be true to myself as a communicator. So yes, I have accepted my weirdness. And I think that that's what makes us all beautiful is what makes us weird. Yeah, I I like the way you put that. Conflict is unavoidable, which you talk about in the book. So as you put it, uh, can we bravely address it before it gets unnecessarily complicated? And I put that in quotes. Hey, for sure we can. We can even address it after it gets unnecessarily complicated. What do we need here? Uh, let's see. I think if if you were a coaching client, what I would do is say, grab a piece of scrap paper. We could all do this right now, or you could do it in your head. And I'd like you to think of a recent disagreement you've had with someone. Could be at home or work, or maybe it's ongoing because in most, you know what, in most family or r- romantic relationships, the, fo- the things you fight about, that folks fight about are the same thing for years and years. So maybe you have something coming to mind and there, there you go. 
divide the page so that you have me at the top of one column and them at the top of the other. Put a couple bullet points under each and put the topic at the top, like finances or time spent with in-laws or delegation of job tasks, whatever that might be, political differences in your family and you, between your family and you. And then under me, enjoy it because now you can write a couple bullet points and you could probably do more, but three or four is great. Why you think your position is strong or more correct or better. Could be parenting. I've seen parents at odds about using discipline with their children or reward with oh, their children. all the time. Have, have different opinions here. And then them, guess what you do with the them column? This is so much harder for most people. List two or three elements of their position that you can respect, even if you don't agree with it. All right. And once you've done that, and this might be you know something to do this weekend or this evening when you have quiet time, now you're prepared to have a conversation about the conflict. And what I want you to open with is, I've been thinking about overarching point of pain or conflict, spoken or unspoken. Maybe it's been rehashed and fought about 55 times. Maybe it's been a weird, quiet tension that you haven't yet spoken. Either way, you are the courageous communicator. You're bringing it up. I'm proud of you. Do so when you can be candid, helpful, kind, and you can control your tone. Do not speak down to anyone. And that that's something I struggle with when I'm so sure that I'm right, right? So damn sure that I'm right. And open it with saying, I've been thinking about, name the conflict, and say, would you please tell me how you see it? And I mean, you need to speak from the heart. You need to mean this. Would you please tell me how you see it? Well, we've talked about this. We've talked about this 20 times, Mark. I don't want to go through it again, but I'm going to try to listen better this time. Would you please tell me how you're thinking about it today? How do you see it now? You listen, which means you don't interrupt or interject or disagree while they're speaking. And when they're done, now you have time to speak. And one of the first things I'd like you to do is I want you to give credit to some point of their position that isn't totally offensive or sounding wrong to you. So something you could say, I see it differently, but I really respect what you're saying about. And then you name one of those things they've told you or that you've done your homework and you've listed as one of their decent points of their position. What you're going to find sitting across from you then is a human who is much more open. You've increased the likelihood that they're going to hear your point and that you'll be able to get to some sort of collaboration or compromise, which is about the best you can do in conflict. I think you have to earn the other person's trust too in the communication style that you have. You know, if you're a screamer all the time and you're yelling at the person as opposed to, giving them a chance to explain themselves, then it's a lose-lose for everybody at the end of the day, right? I mean, you know, you see lots of people try to shout the other person down, and so then they stop trusting the other person, and then that's it. Game's over because you've lost that, right? Uh, In large group meetings, leaders often seem to dominate the conversation, sometimes don't appear, which may not be accurate, open to suggestion or disagreement. How does a leader communicate their openness and opinions that don't match the leader's view? Okay, Mark, before I answer that one, which is related, can we go back to if if you're a screamer, you're, you're not yeah. likely to have much goodwill or good faith when you try to manage a conflict? 
Yeah. yeah. If you have made a mistake by completely withdrawing, using the silent treatment, being passive aggressive, demeaning someone, yelling at them, then yep. the best the best pro move I can offer is a legit apology, a legitimate apology that doesn't have anything to do with you saying, I'm sorry, you're so sensitive. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm right. sorry for my, I'm sorry for my actions. And when we do apologize for our actions, you know, what's needed, just a genuine effort to do better next time. And an invitation for the person to call you out when you fall by the, when you fall off to the side and you don't stick to your goal. Um, I'm thinking, as you said that I'm not a screamer, but I have been to that point where I've been so angry that I've screamed at people. And what someone said to me is, you know, when someone loses it like that, what do they feel? And what they're feeling is that they're not being heard. Just something for us to think about. But a hot temper is something that can certainly be wrangled as we use emotional intelligence. Apologies are important. And many of our executive coaching clients who have that type of style or are quick to anger, the first thing we ask them to do is make a list of people that they think might deserve an apology because of their miscommunication. Isn't that a kind of polite way to say it? They've miscommunicated. And then after we meet again, we role play so that those apologies can get said. To your follow-up question there, how can you be a leader who encourages dissent? Is is that the essence of what you're asking, Mark? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think some people feel the leader is so dominant, and I've been around CEOs who say they want dissent or disagreement, but really don't want that at the end of the day. Yes, amen, amen. Everybody I hear in leadership talk these days talks about their their open door policy, mm. and then in my personal experience of coaching thousands of these folks, I'd say less than half have an open door policy. So that's not an ethical use of communication. Grab a corporate buzzword and then and pronounce it as if it's part of your style. Yeah. And folks can figure that out quickly and they stop coming to you. So right. if, you, if you want to be a leader or team member or family member who encourages dissent and open communication, then you can't punish people directly or indirectly when they do speak truth to you. And if you're in power, that's what you need more than almost more than anything is you need at least a few people around you who will speak truth to you. And as a personal example, I want to give this interview and our listeners 110% of my best effort today. So my heart is in it fully. And I have a few coworkers who are joining and they know we've already discussed it this morning. I can't wait to get that text or phone call from you when this interview ends before the workday ends. So you can tell me what I could do better. As they do that, I have to make sure that I'm open to receiving it. I I maintain some love for myself because what did I do today? I did my best. What else can I bring? But I have to show that courage as a communicator to open my mind to hear the hard things and it will hurt. Their constructive criticism, it will sting a little. And I, I know they mean well, and I hope that they're careful in the way they deliver it or at least try to be somewhat kind. And then I grow. And through life, I have noticed that the people who are the most joyful, the most successful, they are the most heard and respected. And heck, also true, they make the most money, are those who are constantly in a feedback loop where they're giving people permission around them to tell you what they think. And that goes for all ages. Uh, Please talk about the concept of skillful self-disclosure And when should that be used? Skillful self-disclosure is, if this is, all my secret stuff is behind this wall, 
Skillful self-disclosure is deciding who in my world is going to get to see me lower the wall and share some of the burdens and hurts and hopes and dreams that I carry around. The new ones coming in, the old ones from the past, but show my heart and a little bit of my history and my hopes and dreams. But we have to be careful who we trust with those things because some folks might use that self-disclosure, those gifts of letting someone know you more deeply in a way that's unethical or that could set you up to fail. So we have to take some risk to be successful. Here's a generalization and I try to avoid generalizations because every situation is so different, but we have to choose a few people in life who really get to see our scars and our weaknesses and our dreams and all of it, or at least some of that, if we want to grow as a human being. So we size up who we can trust and who we can't. Sometimes we get burned or hurt and we decide, I've seen humans then decide, well, that's it. I'm not trusting anyone. I think that happens a lot in relationships where um, people disclose things and then it gets uses, uh, it gets weaponized somewhere down the road. And, and that even happens in business, right? You trust a colleague and tell them things. And then if something goes wrong in, at, at work, they, sometimes they could end up being weaponized against you. That's true. But that we can't allow that to hold us back from taking some risks to overcome the fear, to share who we are with others, or we miss out on some of the best joys in life and also all kinds of great communication opportunities. We can recover. When we're embarrassed, we can recover. If someone does us wrong, it becomes, how about this? It becomes a story. We took a chance. We were brave. We took a risk. We trusted and we were hurt. And then when someone comes to us and says, oh man, Angela, Kumar, Jerome, Stephen, my my heart is broken or I'm completely embarrassed. How could I have been so stupid to trust that person? Then we at least have empathy for their situation And we can say, I've been there. Here's how I recovered. Because we do recover. By the way, you mentioned, I'm sorry. There's a Tom Petty song called, um, back to Tom Petty. It's called Only a Broken Heart. And I think he wrote it with courage and a lot of um, deep, deep wisdom that when we are hurt as communicators, we can always get back up. Earlier in the conversation, uh, you mentioned getting to know people in your in your work environment, what are safe conversations to have with people, especially after we've gone through the Me Too movement and other movements uh, where people are very even hesitant to talk about anything for fear of uh, insulting someone or offending someone? So what are the safe conversations to use that you get to actually know someone on a personal level to develop more than just uh, a transaction uh, oriented relationship? Horrific question. I view it from an abundance mentality rather than a scarcity mindset. So I think that the number of topics for conversations that we can have with others to increase our trust bond with them are unlimited. But let's stay away from topics that we wouldn't want to hear a loved one asked about in the workplace. So imagine your loved one coming home and saying, you're not going to believe what someone asked me or said to me today and you would be upset on their behalf, obviously try to apply that same filter to what you would ask others. 
here's a good, here's a good topic. What can you tell me a little bit about your experience with, and then pick anything that you find, for example, in their LinkedIn profile that you don't know about? Did they attend a school that you haven't heard of or that you have? Do they have some project experience and you've never worked in that type of project? Or perhaps you're a subject matter expert. So you're going to bond on that. Oh, we both love to do this thing, or we both have done that in the past. I'd love to learn more about your experience with that. So as we go through the world and we try to eliminate our perceptual biases, one great way to do that is, would you please tell me a little more about? And then remember, nobody owes you any explanations about any part of their their current experience or their history, but they might give you the gift of lowering their wall and allowing you to see in and learn from them about their experience. Um, You write about uh, people about speaking to lift others. What does that look like? And how do you do it that people feel empowered and motivated? This one makes me a little emotional because I think it's my purpose. And, And sometimes when you drill down to why you really were born, And what you really have to give personally and professionally as a communicator, it can fill you up. It can fill your heart. So I take great joy from trying to build others up. And I'm I'm aware. So we can all start with being aware that every one of us that has joined today or that is listening after, we all have crosses that we carry. And we have things um, that are unseen by others that weigh us down, hurt our hearts, and damage our self-esteem. So whomever you're dealing with, I don't care how perfect their life looks, uh, how much money they make, or if they're at the top of the organization, they carry burdens and sorrows. And that helps us when we want to interact with folks and leave them better for having interacted with us. So a piece of advice that I would give is in each interaction that you have today, after we say goodbye to one another, or in just a few of them, the very next person you talk with, let's say be it a grocery store clerk or your coworker or significant other. Ask yourself after the brief exchange or long exchange, there was communication sent and received. Ask yourself, how did I leave that person feeling as a result of having communicated with me? And answer honestly. And if you think, "Eh, not better or worse, then you can do better in most cases. And if you think, well, I guess I, I forgot to thank them and I did I did point out three things they could do better. And overall, I was grumpy because I've been working a lot. And I also was a little short. Then you can do better. In fact, you can do better right away. You can turn back around and say, hey, hey, um, I was short with you. I'm sorry. I've got a lot on my mind right now. But I wanted to ask, how are you doing? How was your day? Luckily, as long as we're alive, there is always time to revise and revisit. And I think that's one way we can build trust as well, is to go back and say, I didn't leave you the way I meant to leave you feeling. You are, in fact, important to me. And had we videotaped that, people might not know it. So I'm back. Hi, I'm back. And I'd like to try better, try to do better this time. So just start thinking about how you leave others feeling. And remember, the advice I give is never just to benefit the other person. It always benefits you. It always benefits the client. So I want you to try this because it creates credibility and it creates success in any of your communication goals. You write about the four types of power when communicating. Please explain what those are and how you can use them in a positive way. Sure. 
And if, if anyone would like to take notes, I'm going to be as succinct as possible because I think that that might be helpful. So one of the first types of power that we teach in communication seminars and in one-on-one -on -one executive coaching is personal power. And personal power is warmth and approachability. Are you a person who I wouldn't hesitate to stick my head in your office and say, hey, do you have time for a quick question? Or are you a person that I'd have to kind of watch your, look at you and size you up and watch your face to see if this is a good day to ask or not? The higher your personal power, the more approachable and genuinely interested in others you are, and the more you can lift them up. Personal power. For fun, if you want, what if I asked you to rate yourself one through 10 in use of this power, use of this power at this age in your life? One would be, um, that's not me. Compared to my peers, I don't use this at all. Five would be compared to my peers. I'm using this quite, quite a bit, not all the time, but sometimes. And 10 would be, this is my superpower. So on a scale of one to 10, how much personal power do you use? How warm and approachable do you think you are? Do you stretch towards us? Another type of power that's very important is knowledge power. And that's subject matter expertise, your expertise in your field. On a scale of one to 10, are you a newbie, not very educated, trying something new? Do you feel like you have an average amount or is this a superpower for you, knowledge power? And of course, there are ways to grow it. And you're going to find all kinds of tools at the website, gladioconsulting.com and coaches corners with people asking similar questions, succinctly answered in a way that helps you begin to use these types of power. A third is referent power. And referent power comes from how many people you know and how well. So if you're in an organization of 500 people and you know 500, amazing. Give yourself a 10. And if you have work to do there, you can begin to invite others into your circle. And in this way, we study inner circle, in-groups and out-groups. And it's a powerful communicator who works on building their in-group, building it up so there are more folks in the in-group. So that's personal power, referent power, knowledge power, and, oh my gosh, I'm drawing a blank here on my fourth type of power that we teach. Let's see. Um, oh yes, of course, position power. Position power, and I write about that in Communicate with Courage, because as you work through your career, Position power gives you decision-making authority, and now you can bring your inclusive, open to constructive criticism, sticking up for what's needed for others and yourself. That positional power brings you a blessing, and that is you can get more things done more quickly. A quick way to define positional power is decision-making authority, and that's usually conferred by the organization, or you negotiate for it. Uh, if you types. we love to teach them, we love to watch people grow in them, Mark, and everybody who's working with us in coaching, they've all selected one type of power this year to grow in. And then we're providing the strategies and the ideas very specific to their careers to help them get to the next level with that power, hoping, hoping I might add that they use it ethically always. Is there one type of power that people typically choose? Those who really need it tend to choose personal power. Um, and it's pretty it's pretty cool in a group training of like 30 or 50 or 10. I'll ask people after they see the definitions, they hear about them and they choose, they rate themselves and they pick a lower number. 
I'll say, did anyone choose personal power because they have a lower number or what, what type of power did you choose? And we recently had one gentleman raise his hand and he said, I chose personal power. Guess what happened? The rest of the room started to applaud, which was a little awkward, but he knew he smiled and he said, they know, they know that's what I need. So personal power seems to be evident when folks could turn up the warmth. And many people are also choosing referent power and making it, making it a point to spend a few more minutes at the end of a call or end of a meeting, just to intentionally get to know someone a little bit better. Yeah. And, and that's what I was asking before, like, you know, the types of things you can to get to know person, people on a personal level. It, you know, yeah. It could be personal, such as, um, of course, if they want to talk about their family, it could be as simple as you're from this state. What do you think about this team? What are yeah, that's what I think outside too. of work, right? So sometimes yeah. I'll go to sports or mute. I'm a, you know, I'm a big music lover. So I just kind of investigate what do we have in common? And you know what? You don't even need to talk about commonalities. You can talk about something completely different that you have no idea about. What is that like? If you had to, if you lost trust with someone, what can you do to rebuild it? What do you say to put yourself in the right track to repair it? Mark, I've noticed that things are a little different between us lately. Things feel a little weird or tense to me. And I'm wondering if if I've had a hand in that, if I've played any part in that, I'd love for you to tell me if there's something I've done. And let's say you take the, uh, let's say you take an easy way out. There is something, but you are avoidant and you don't even know how to say it. So you might say, no, I notice people's voices go up in this yeah. tone. Yeah. No, everything's good. Okay. Well, here's what I say to that. Okay. Well, if you think of something anytime, I'd love to know because I really value our relationship or I'd like it to be better. So you don't call them out on it and say, uh, clearly not by the sound of your voice. That depends. Are you married to me? <laughs> uh, are you, are you a very close confidant or friend? I probably, I gotta be honest. I'd probably call that out, but uh. another way to do it is okay. A very smooth way to do it. I'm here. If you think of something because I value improving our relationship. Not easy stuff, is it? Nah, not if it's no, easy. That's why, that's why I thought the, the world needed a book. You know how many, there's so many millions of books. Our host, everybody, Mark has written six books published on McGraw-Prentice Hall, right? Yeah, Prentice Hall, McGraw-Hill, Adams Media. Here's my next question to you. There's a story in the book about a restaurant in Florida called The Clam Shack. Uh, you cite them as an organization with good communication, team camaraderie. Please tell us about them and how others could emulate them. I thought it was a good story. Thanks so much. Um, and thank you for reading the book. Yes, that's a brother-sister team. They moved from New England to the southwest coast of Florida. And I was there on vacation and wanted to be at this restaurant every day. Because simple clam shack, simple food, good New England seafood, and the, the young brother, sister running the place, I observed them as I do. I always study all the communicators around me and they were outward. You never, you never felt that you weren't welcome. As soon as you stepped in the small clam shack, you were greeted and they treated their servers and their cooks like they were equally important in running the business. And I would see them do these quick little huddles with how are we making, is everyone good? What does anyone need? And they did it really quietly. 
And there was never any kind of positional power that was misused or used against a member of the staff. They made me feel at home and they, they, they have delicious food. And they, unfortunately, I hope they'll rebuild, but they were impacted by Hurricane Ian. I did send them a copy of the book saying, you're a model of customer service and of great customer communication. We use them as a model in customer service seminars. I want you to know I wrote about you because what they have is something all of us can get. And that is a commitment to lifting others up that we interact with. And so as one of the owners said to me, uh, as Kara said to me, Michelle, it's it's just one meal in everybody's life that comes in here, but it can be something that can impact them positively. So in my opinion, take all my money and not to mention your food is amazing as well. So that's the Clam Shack in Sanibel Island, Florida. They do it right. And you can't tell who has more positional authority because everybody is in the mix, almost like a scrum, trying to make sure that everyone else's experience is really valuable. And one of the things that touched my heart very much is they always have live music, which is another thing that brought me there. And they took the musician's request sheets and handed them out to everybody while he was busy playing, probably wishing that everybody would know what songs were available for request. They're even thinking about the musician's experience of playing at the small clam shack. You write about having teammates refuse to speak with each other, but they're valued members of the organization. How do you get people who refuse to speak to each other to communicate for the good of the organization? By the way, a big, a major pharmaceutical company in the late 80s, early 90s, the head of R&D and the head of sales hated each other so much that they actually drew a line down the middle of the building. Uh, and their teams could not step over the other side. It was like a uh, civil war. How do you fix that? That's ridiculous. And, and yeah. you know, we're in and out of a couple hundred companies per year. So my first question is, who supervises these folks? Yeah. I mean, and, and these guess, were guess the most senior involved. level. Guess who it falls? Somebody supervises them. There's a board president, a CEO. Right. A CEO, CEO. Yeah. It falls right. on them to deal with this difficult task, but it's really not so difficult, is it, when you state expectations and you point out how the behavior is impacting others, not to mention customers. So back to internal and external customers we go. And what you need to be, those of us that are blessed with supervising other humans, we stepped across the line when we said, yes, I will manage people and processes. So that means it behooves us. It is a, it is a part of our responsibility to address interpersonal conflict as soon as possible and set expectations. Ultimately, it's not worth keeping an individual in the organization if they're not willing to overcome their personal bias towards someone to make a better attempt to work professionally with anyone as long as the behavior is up to professional standards that the other person is exhibiting. So both need to change or somebody needs to go. Yeah, I'm just going to say the latter part for sure. I'm Last sounding question. a lot less nice now, but but uh -huh. in some cases, we just need to be direct and we need to state what we believe in and stick to it and use our positional power. Um, last question. What type of communication skills will leaders need to succeed over the next 10 years? Because between technology and artificial intelligence and so many other things that, you know, um, People not, you know, coming to the office every day. What are the skills the leaders are going to need to communicate and keep everybody moving in a positive direction where they feel good about the organization and want to stay? Mm. 
because we've been communicating now for hundreds of thousands of years, it's not going to be that different, but there will be some differences. So whether this is new news or not, I think it's going to be about balance. So I think we're going to need leaders to have humility and know when to use assertiveness. We're going to need balance from ourselves, right? And from our leaders so that there is a strong presence and focus when you're kicking butt and taking names at work. And then there is an ability to unwind and forget what you do for a living sometimes. Everybody joining us today, please remember you deserve a self-care menu that you have in mind or on paper with little things and big things, free things and things that cost money, things that involve others and things that you can do alone. But these are the things that restore our body, our mind and or soul. If you keep those present in your life, you're always a better communicator in your work life and you're a better leader. So balance between personal and professional time. I don't know if work-life balance 50-50 is ever possible, but I, yeah. try to be, I try to be engaged when I'm at work and I try to be also disengaged sometimes when I am, for example, sometimes I pick up a, an electric bass and play some rock and roll. Not well, mind you, but I don't remember all of my executive coaching clients' concerns while I'm trying to get that song down. So we need balance, humility, assertiveness, personal life, professional life, and also ability to give and receive feedback in a positive professional way. So um, I could go on forever about that, but I see that we're at 1 p.m. Eastern. So those are some thoughts. Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time and clearly from responses here. People got a lot out of it, and I'm sure people will be getting your book. And we appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. You bet. Thank you so much for coming, everybody. And I, I would love a review if you happen to purchase a book. It would mean a lot online. Everyone have a wonderful weekend. We'll look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.